Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to Edge of Sports, the podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are going back to the basketball butterfly effect series with hoops aficionado Arya Shirazi. Now, Basketball Butterfly Effect, if you haven't heard the other episodes, is where we look at draft decisions and game out how the NBA world as we know it now would have been dramatically altered if a critical decision had gone in the other direction. So far, we looked at the 2003 draft and asked what the world would be like if the Pistons had taken Carmelo Anthony instead of Darko. We have looked at the 1996 draft and asked what if the Charlotte Hornets had held on to Kobe Bryant instead of trading him to the Lakers for the Camel Lights-loving Vlade Divac. And we wondered how history would have been different if in 1984, the Portland Trailblazers, with the number two pick, had resisted the siren song of center Sam Bowie and gone with this boring choice, Michael Jeffrey Jordan. But today, ooh, a little more serious today, because we are looking at one of the most talented and star-crossed drafts in history. 1986. Now that's known as the Len Bias draft for many. The year when the unbelievably talented Maryland power forward died less than two days after being selected second overall by the defending champs, the Boston Celtics. His death, of course, was ruled an overdose that resulted from cocaine. Now, but it's not just about Len Bias. Drugs and the punitive war on drugs a.k.a. suspensions, really just destroyed the careers of a generationally incredible crew of big men from that draft. Chris Washburn, Roy Tarpley, William Bedford. So we are going to talk about this because it's enough to talk about, but just a quick note about the 86 draft. It also was the draft of perhaps the most skilled big man to ever live, Arvidas Sabonis, and he wouldn't see the NBA for another decade being in the USSR. That was the draft of the beautiful, too beautiful for this world, Drazen Petrovic. Uh, and it was also the draft of Steph's dad, Del Curry, and the late great Kevin Duckworth, the incredible Walter Berry, future Hall of Famer Dennis Rodman. And I didn't even mention Rookie of the Year, Chuck Connors person. But this week, we're going to focus on drugs on the and its physical harm, criminalization, suspensions that warped a generation of NBA players. That was really long, and now I can finally get to Shiraz. First question for you, Shiraz. Len Bias, 1986, the Celtics, rapidly aging front court, even though they were the defending champs. What would Bias have meant to those Celtics teams and anything else you might want to say about Len Bias? The first thing uh, I think about with bias is remembering the Celtics having the number two pick in that draft just a couple of weeks after they had won another NBA championship, uh, my, uh, which was not good news because they were my most hated team, of course. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> to still have that bad taste in my mouth And then realized that they had the number two pick. It's like, how did this happen? It had to be the Clippers. And yes, indeed, going back and checking, it was the Clippers lottery pick, which fell to the uh, Celtics winding up at number two in exchange for uh, Cedric Maxwell. Wow. So so it just kind of got worse and worse as a Knicks fan at that time. And... Uh, bias was kind of considered, in my memory, maybe the top player in college. Uh, it was not a scandal that he didn't go one. And actually, in your very thorough and entertaining intro, I don't believe you mentioned the actual number one pick, Brad Darty, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, you know, who I'm sure that we'll talk about 
through various threads of this conversation. But uh, it, it is the fates and the uh, kind of sad fates of many of the players in this draft, which give this draft uh, its name and its reputation. But Bias, of course, was the kind of the featured player and really the poster individual uh, of tragedy. You know, it's one thing to have your career cut short uh, uh, by, in this case, substance abuse. As you said, Bias died two days after the draft. So uh, it, it, you know, it, it, it remains something that's crazy. It remains something uh, that is really, uh, you know, tragic, of course, and he's at the top of the what if list. Uh, but that that's kind of my memory of bias is he was kind of the can't miss player mm -hmm. in the draft. And there didn't seem to be justice in the fact that the Celtics would be uh, the beneficiaries of that, particularly as their legendary core which had already produced three rings uh was uh was starting to age age out uh and bias seemed to be the perfect uh kind of a dream uh inheritant of that so uh horrible though absolutely horrible i mean one of the things that makes bias so tantalizing is the combination of size, power forward, and athleticism, which I would argue you wouldn't see in the NBA until Sean Kemp. The, the degree to which Bias was able to get his whole head over the rim for what he was, the joke at the time I remember was, because you know Michael Jordan was everybody's cup of tea at the moment coming off that rookie season he had, um, or two seasons, sorry. Um, and then he just had scored 63 in the playoffs. And with Len Bias, they were saying, what if Michael Jordan was a power forward? Like it was capturing like that, that kind of imagination that you really do have to go to Sean Kemp, the rain man, to get, to get in your head. Because I, I, I was very wired into Bias at the time. I, like you, was very upset that he was going to go to the Celtics. And it's so funny because... You know, Brad Doherty, great player, career cut short by injuries. This is not a knock on Brad, but this is still that mid-80s era where it's, if you're the best big man, you're going number one. And that kind of ends the discussion. So you got a seven-footer, Doherty, skilled, bam, number one. But Bias was the best player. I mean, Bias was just, the potential was just through the roof. And I think about those Celtics teams because people always remember Bird uh, really just being ground to a nub and lying on his stomach on the sides because, you know, he can't even sit without his back hurting. But McHale as well, like injured a lot in the late 80s, playing huge minutes, you know, Parrish, you know, never getting any younger ever. And <laughs> just, my God, he was on the... I think he was on the team that Kobe would have been on as a rookie when we were looking at, at those rosters. But, um, but yeah, I would say ageless, but he always looked ancient as well. Yes. So, yeah. so, so that kind of added to the whole, uh, you know, uh, endless longevity for the chief. Yeah. The, the one, the, the great, the saving grace of the, I thought kind of weird, uh, documentary about Bill Walton that just dropped was the chief got a lot of time with the mic and you don't usually see that the chief the chief had some good things to say but I haven't seen it but I am glad to hear that yeah so I think it makes a big difference uh to, to that team like just extending itself into the late 80s Reggie Lewis another horrific tragedy but like you, you begin to see what could have taken shape in Boston uh, uh there's a lot of things I want to respond to uh, that you just said. I'll try to remember them. Uh, first off is that I agree that Bias was the best player in college and the best player, basketball player, coming out of the draft. Uh, I feel as though the right player went number one and the right player went number two. Brad was not just the best big man available. It turned out 
that Brad, for the bulk of his, as you said, too short career, he only played eight years, and I think was an all-star in six of those eight years. Uh, growing up as a Knicks fan in the 80s, early 90s, with, uh, with Patrick Ewing as the center of the team and kind of the acknowledged best play center in the East, Brad for the majority of his career was the number two best center in the East. It really wasn't a question uh, as Moses uh, uh, was aging and was no longer at the top and Shaq had not yet arrived. And Brad wasn't just putting up all-star numbers. He was kind of the backbone of a super talented Cavaliers team that was a real force for uh for at least half a decade uh when uh you know never could overcome detroit and chicago but was right in the conversation at that time as one of the strongest teams in the east and a potential championship uh contender even so uh I, I wouldn't even say that the Cavaliers should have drafted Bias, that they would have had more success in that time had Bias played, uh, you know, obviously lived and played for them. So I don't, you know, I, I feel as though Cleveland, abs you know, absolutely picked the right number one pick. And I wish he would have played longer because I really like Brad's game. Uh, second is that in 1986, Larry was not yet the guy with persistent back problems lying on the back, uh, lying on uh, on his back on the court and and willing himself to play. That was a few years off. So Larry was coming off his third consecutive MVP trophy, sitting out very few games, playing 40 plus minutes a night. Uh, as you said, McHale already had the foot issues and was uh and and was the gimpier of the two at that time larry was still kind of an iron man so uh so the prospect of bias and the 22 year old bias playing alongside bird uh bird in that current state and McHale and the rest of the guys just meant that Boston's championship window and all we had known is Boston having an available championship window that that was going likely going to be extended they had stumbled into the player who could potentially extend that it's interesting that you think of Sean Kemp or made the Kemp comparisons uh the raw athleticism, certainly, even though Bias's athleticism was less raw than Kemp's because he had uh, what differentiates them for me is that Bias had much better ball skills. He was capable of being an initiator that Kemp never was. Kemp would have those two big dribbles, tuck it in and then go over everybody. Uh, Bias, to me, always reminded me a little more of Dominique Wilkins, which was scary because Neek was one of the top forwards in the league at that time. So, again, having a player that I kind of likened to, to Wilkins uh, as much as any current player in the league added to that Boston championship core, uh, you know, was scary. Uh, you asked what kind of, you know, what could have been. And you mentioned Reggie Lewis, and that is kind of the most interesting, not the most, but another very interesting aspect of it all. In the wake of Bias's tragic passing and never even, you know, close to donning a Celtics uniform, uh, Boston is still at the top of the East that next year. And then as opposed to drafting at the top of the first round, they draft at the bottom of the first round and take uh, a very unheralded local player out of Northeastern, Reggie Lewis, who, before his tragic demise, of course, which you referenced, uh, Reggie kind of becomes, he becomes an all-star. And he becomes, you know, at first complementing that aging but still effective 
core and then really being the one rather than bias, Bird kind of passes it to Lewis. And Lewis shows that he's more up to it than I think anybody could have imagined. So uh, would Len Bias have been a better player than Reggie Lewis in the NBA? Possibly slash probably, but certainly not definitely because Reggie was really, really good. So it's interesting to, that we got a, a, an unlikely glimpse of with Lewis of what it might have been for a much younger uh, kind of, uh, you know, six, eight player uh, becoming the, fo the focal point for that Celtics team. Well, that would have been the future, though, because like you said, the Celtics were still strong. So there's no reason to think they still wouldn't have taken Lewis. So they yeah, the two of them playing Lewis together. Sure. Bias. I mean, and th that would have been amazing because we're asking what if these horrible deaths had not taken place? And it, it's it, it, it makes you sad. I mean, it, I should probably point out I, I'm like a five minute drive from where Bias went to high school. Uh, 15 minute drive from UMD. So, I mean, the, the way people carry that with them is so strong. And that is, I think that's my first, you remember where you were when it happened moment, maybe of my life was yeah. when bias died and you're just like, I'm, I'm sorry, what? Like yeah. it just didn't even make any sense. And then it also with that tragedy had this ripple effect of, uh, David Stern, like cracking down on drugs, the the banning of Michael Ray Richardson, which is really a screwed up story about somebody who's been now clean for 36 years and could have gone back to the NBA, but, you know, was so hurt by how they handled his situation and putting that sort of brand on him. Uh, inexcusable. But it also meant a real crackdown on um, some of the other players in this draft. Uh, William Bedford, you know, was on the, uh, he was drafted by a Phoenix team that there's no other way to put it was really into cocaine That Phoenix team. My God, so much cocaine. And then Chris Washburn, who, you know, who was raised uh, in a situation where his uncle uh, would share crack with him. And so it, instead of like trying to figure out like rehabilitation, protecting the privacy of the players, like after the horror of Bias's death, it was like, we're going to show the country that we have this no tolerance policy and all of this. And Len Bias is going to be the symbol of that. So some really sad repercussions. And I didn't even mention Roy Tarpley, who might've been the most talented of all those big guys um, other than Bias. And, but ah, it just, the uses of the death of Len Bias after he passed were, were pretty brutal in the broader society too. Like Nancy Reagan uh, jumped on this shit. Um, but in the NBA, particularly. I was really looking forward to uh, talking about this draft, having this conversation uh, as you've, as you said in your intro, the three conversations we've had prior have really centered on what are largely considered maybe the uh, the top three drafts are all of all time or very, very talked about and celebrated drafts, 1984, 1996, and 2003, the players and legacies and championships that came out of those drafts. Uh, this draft uh, obviously has a different reputation and uh, is known for different uh for different reasons than championships uh, and on-court success. But, uh, but you know, I mean, like this draft, as much as any, is so uh, indicative of the time in which it took place. And, you know, even the bias situation, you know, I was 11 years old when this all happened. And uh, and hearing about bias and the circumstances under which he died, I remember for, you know, for me and the people around me, it wasn't, how could this have happened? It was, man, he got unlucky. You know, I mean, because it wasn't, it, it was, that's what you do. I mean, he went out and he just got drafted, number two. He went out and celebrated in a way that, 
you went out and celebrated and he got unlucky. He died from it. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned that only to say that this is what life was. You and I are from New York in 1986. That's what life is. And kind of the players coming into the NBA at this time are, 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 are again, you know, products of this time period. Uh, and as you and I are as well. And uh, the interesting thing about this draft is uh, it doesn't fit into as tidy a narrative as as one would 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 think really. I mean, to me, there aren't cautionary tales because again, going back to 1986, it is a time when, I, you know, I, I briefly skimmed the first the, the the first round, the players drafted in the first round. And these were all players who spent two, three, mostly four years in college, mm. except for Sabonis, who you mentioned at the very end of the first round. Uh, there, there were no other players, uh, foreign players drafted in the first round, later rounds, yes, but you know, high you know high school players, of course, was a decade off, and nobody came in after their first year. I don't, you know, uh, Washburn. I know spent two years at NC State, and he was the rarity. So again, I say that to say that it's almost a reverse narrative. You know, these are by the time these players were drafted and came into the league, we were very familiar with them because they had mm -hmm. spent. We had followed their college careers which had been three or four years. So these are not 18 year olds coming into money and being overwhelmed. These are 22, 23 year olds coming into money and appearing as though they are overwhelmed. So uh, I, I got a real quick, I got to back up something you said about 10 minutes ago. I've been rolling it around in my head, really trying to put myself back when I was 12 years old and you're absolutely right. I mean, New York in 1986, like going to the park was a daily thing and seeing crack vials all over the park and needles all over the park in the gutters, whatever, was just a part of it. And we were at the forefront of that, of, of the crack, whatever you want to call it, and saw how it was um, something that some people lived and some people died. <laughs> From doing and, and just and just to, to to back you up on that, Dave, that it was not they were not separate. Some of the best ballers on the court in the park would be busting ass and then go sit on the bench and smoking crack. Smoke. Yeah. So again, yeah. it was it wasn't a you're choosing this or this. In many ways, it all blended together as daily life. Yeah. No, that's right. And, and, and a daily life, though, that uh, some people got lucky and some people didn't. And it's so interesting. Like, I met Chris Washburn, a wildly talented player, we have to point out. Someone who got, like, I think, like a dozen different schools under NCAA probation uh, throughout his uh, young journey. And, and, but that goes to something you said. Like, I remember being, like, personally invested in Chris Washburn. Because even though he'd only played a couple years at NC State, he'd already had this soap operatic uh, journey through the college ranks. And you were curious what would happen to him in the pros. But I remember talking to him and he said um, about how his uncle gave him crack for the first time. And my response was um, like, wow, was, was he able to get clean? Is he still with us? And he looked at me funny and he said, no, still smoking crack. And uh, now he's just an old man who does it and if you think of lambias doing it like as was reported once and dying it's just it's so fucking sad it makes me think also of the drug war and when you drive this stuff underground it's not as safe and makes me think of fentanyl right now i mean it's just a lot of thoughts pinging through my head about people dying unnecessarily because they're choosing as adults to take part in this it just, it tears at me a little bit. But hey, honest question. Do you remember Roy Tarpley? Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, I do. Uh, <laughs> I love Roy Tarpley, man. Uh, Tarp, I remember him at Michigan, but I really remember him 
as part of those Mavs teams that I have very, very fond memories of, uh, you know, kind of those emerging Mavericks team, you know, look, uh, you know, there were always teams in the West at that time looking to possibly be a threat to the Showtime Lakers uh, and Dallas for, you know, in the aftermath of this draft that we're speaking of, Dallas had a really, really tough team and a really young team. Uh, Mark Aguirre, Orlando Blackman, Derek Harper, and Sam Perkins were a, a very strong and kind of versatile uh, players in their mid-20s, and adding Tarbley seemed like the perfect guy. And A rebounding machine. Because this is such a long time ago now, uh, I, you know, I think a lot of these players and their games and their games relative to how the NBA game was played at the time, uh, a, a time that I love in the NBA, of course. Uh, uh, some of these players are lost to time. Uh, Tarpley did a lot of that to himself by having a far shorter career than he should have. But man, if you remember, Tarp was so good. Tarp was really fucking amazing. And uh, it, it was his addition to that team that really made Dallas uh, not only a uh, a young team capable of giving you a tough series, but possibly the team to emerge as the next great team mm -hmm. in the West. And uh, and you know Washburn and Bedford really they they never got off to a they never really got started. Mm -hmm. So and then they had periods of inactivity and would come back and really didn't make much of an impact. So they're really the what ifs. I mean, Tarpley, when he played again, was such an effective big man uh, with a really, really kind of unique game for an almost seven footer uh, that that kind of take having his career taken away and subtracting him from the NBA landscape was a real loss because we got a glimpse of the kind of player he was and what he could bring. I'm looking at uh, his stats right now and it's so sad because the stats are amazing. Like 13 boards a game, 12 boards a game, 12 boards a game, but all the seasons except for one are super truncated. Yeah. I mean, he averaged 12 12 boards a game in 28 minutes. I mean, he was, that was a beast. Yeah. He was, he was, as they say, uh, built different yeah. and uh, he could have turned them into something, which really, I really wish they'd gotten an honest shot at being, which is that heir apparent team, because I as well love those guys. And then they scattered them to the, to the Eastern conference. Uh, Rolando uh, Absolutely sinfully underused by Pat Riley in the 94 finals when Starks was struggling. I'll never get over that. And of course, uh, Aguirre, critical piece. Getting uh, his rings. Yeah, for those rings, even though I think Dantley got hosed. But that's, uh, you know, Adrian Dantley's like a youth ref out here. Like we go to games and Dantley's a ref. Did he tell you that he got hosed? <laughs> Actually. He told me he was uh, Adrian Dantley. It's like, yeah. uh, like it's like the old, you know. I hope he was. It's like the old joke. What's the last thing you ever want to hear when giving oral sex to Willie Nelson? I'm not Willie Nelson. All right, you you knew that one. Yeah, I thought it was funny, but I thought it was funny both times. Oh, great! Yeah. <laughs> Very Good. kind. Yeah. Very kind. Um, quick, quick thing about William Bedford is that I actually do remember he came back for a song with Detroit. And I remember being like, whoa, he can shoot. Like, had a pretty shot for a seven-footer. Just another, you know, a, a sad talent. that. And I, I keep going back to this. Like, I'm not tut-tutting at William Bedford and being like, you wasted your shot or some shit like that. It's more like how the league approached drugs. Well, if, if you don't mind, Dave, uh, could you elaborate a little more on why you kind of point the finger at the league and feel as though they let down some of these players uh, who uh, who got involved with drugs early in their careers? I only say that because when you mentioned that a few minutes ago, uh, my memory is that none of these players were suspended right away. Mm hmm. 
they uh, no no or were i mean no uh, pardon me none of them were uh were dismissed from the league yeah right away you know i mean but i think both washburn and bedford had stop and start suspensions for a couple of years and again i'm not i I, i'm not playing devil's advocate at all i'm just saying uh you know as far as as punitive measures uh, my memory was that there were phased, phased aspects to this. So, you know, being more knowledgeable on this, uh, what about the league's response? And again, the you know, at a very kind of sensitive period where, you know, not only has one of their potentially marquee young players very publicly died of an overdose, uh, right after being drafted, but also, as you said, teams and players throughout the league are uh you know are, are kind of being branded as drug users or drug squads even in the case of the suns so uh how did the the league kind of let its players down well you just uh gave a good part of the answer which is about the broader climate in society uh both the war on drugs stuff but also the the very real shock and after effects of bias dying and the league wanting to show that, you know, David Stern has this under control and there will be a punitive publicly shaming war on drugs inside the NBA. And I raise this because it's, it, it would be pretty uh, silly of us to think that cocaine use or any kind of uh, narcotic use was only really around from you know, 77 to 86 or something like that. And then a new generation rose, you know, drinking smoothies. But it it was the way the league chose to respond in that period that was, I think, not rooted in how can we reach a handout to people and, and help them if they want help. And instead looking at more as we need to send a message to the public that we're not going to put up with this. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that that's really been what the league has done um, in terms of drug, like reaching out quietly. Uh, It's in the CBA that, you know, the first couple of times it's not allowed to be made public and the third time, then it becomes a public suspension. Like they've, they've softened the edges of this dramatically, took out the marijuana stuff, you know, after having it be hardcore in the days of Danielle Marshall. I don't know why I have to focus on him, but I've always associated. Just because you always looked high. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love Danielle. I did. I do too. Uh, not least of all for that. Well, uh, no, I, I actually think, Dave, that 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 both of what you said is is right, actually, and it's again both of those things that you're referring to are very much products of being in the middle of the 80s. We're talking about 1986 into the 1987 season and then going into 1988, where two things come to mind. First of all, uh, you know, to use a lazy and overused uh, phrase, in 1986, it was not a woke environment. So Adam Silver, in dealing with anything, is not going to be caught saying the wrong thing. And whenever I hear Silver say anything, it is such a polished, I mean, it is to the word. It is lest anybody think we are not sensitive and cognizant of a bigger picture. Mm -hmm. You are wrong. Try to find that in my words. And, you know, and that is now kind of the corporate model. We know we are corporate. We know we're a huge multi-billion dollar corporation. We know now that that is not popular. So we are going to acknowledge that, acknowledge that people come first while still, you know, pocketing billions Mm -hmm. and millions. I say that to say that in 1986, that kind of messaging was not a priority. We were not at that point. So a response to drug use and drug deaths was not going to be cuddly. 
as it needs to be now, it was going to, you know, be, be much firmer. Second of all is that right now the NBA is an unimpeachable financial entity. The NBA is a worldwide brand that is, uh, you know, far more popular outside of this country than any other U.S. sport, as well as being really popular in this country. So the the NBA of today is almost always operating from a position of strength. And their responses can reflect that. In 1986, we were seven years into Magic Johnson and Larry Bird being in the NBA, two years into Michael Jordan being in the NBA, and not that far off from the NBA having to show its finals games on tape delay because that's the only airtime that they could afford. So not being in a position of financial strength, not really being in a position of, they have, the NBA had not attained beloved status as far as its brand went. So I say that, I mentioned that only to, to uh, remind us of the climate in which they had to, to respond to things. I, you know, I don't think I've ever found myself defending David Stern necessarily, and I'm not here, but again, like kind of the, the, the second part of, of what we've been talking about is again, in the aftermath of bias. And as you said, the, you know, suspension and trials and tribulations, Michael Ray Richardson, and a few others is if a player had tested positive for cocaine, the league had done nothing. And then shortly after that, the player had died. That would have been a much, much worse PR situation for the NBA than operating under the, you know, probably more punitive, less player and human being supportive policies that they did adopt, which I'm, which I'm, I agree with you that they probably, that those policies and that attitude at the time unnecessarily shortened or curtailed uh, careers, which shouldn't have been uh, shortened in that way. You know, what's kind of interesting as I hear you talk is that this conversation has morphed from being the butterfly effect of Len Bias uh, living and more the butterfly effect of how would the league have been different? How would the lives of people like Roy Tarpley have been different if the league had had a different, uh, chosen a different approach after the death of Len Bias, which I, I mean, which we have to, which we see as a, as a given. Because that's really what it's about. Like you have this crisis. How do you choose to go forward? And, you know, the NBA went in lockstep with a country that in 84 voted for Reagan 49 states to one. You know, that they, they rode that wave, just like they were riding a different wave during Black Lives Matter. And and now they're trying to thread a different kind of needle. So it's of course, right. Of course. It's it's uh, a lot at stake for them. Uh, yeah. Corporate allyship is, uh, you know, cracker thin. Then again, the NBA wants its best players on the court. Yeah. So the NBA would want Michael Ray Richardson and Roy Tarpley to be on the basketball court. Players who had not, you know, who had not established themselves. Chris Washburn, certainly more expendable. Maybe if it appears that he's going to be more of a a uh, media headache than he is uh, on court asset. But that's another thing. I mean, I think the NBA certainly, uh, you know, did not want to be hasty in showing that, that they had a sheriff mentality and just booting players left and right. The, act, the actual number of players who have been dismissed from the NBA for drug use, I think, is still very short. Wow. Amen to that. Well, we're, we're running towards the end of our time, uh, but I wanted to know if you had any comments, any last words, any last thoughts about 86, about how the NBA maybe could have been different if it had had a less punitive uh, policy around drugs in the wake of Bias's death. Uh, 
any any thoughts about um, Walter Berry? No, I'm just kidding. Um, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I almost you know feel like th- there's still so much more to talk about. Uh, you know, some involving Walter Berry and some not. Uh, I mean, to me. It, it clearly it's a draft of unreached uh unreached potential at the time there were seven the lot there were seven lottery picks the lottery was seven teams and of those uh of of those seven one player passed away from 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 drug use two players had their careers almost derailed from the start uh from drug use one had all-star potential and shortened and had his career shortened because of drug use. One was an all-star uh, whose back injuries uh, forced him uh, to end his career pretty much in his prime. And then you had, uh, you have two others, one of whom was the rookie of the year and had a very solid career. Chuck person player picked right behind him uh, did not have a solid NBA career. Kenny Walker. So, uh, so, so again, you know, just, just even those lottery picks are such a fascinating cross section of NBA careers. And again, players coming into the league at that time that, uh, you know, uh, you know, I would love to, you know, either on air or off, you know, have a part two discussion about the 1986 draft because there are so many more kind of interesting players who were involved in this draft. Uh, the, the, Absolutely. I, you know, I, I, I guess my, uh, you know, my, and, you know, it's kind of oft said that with all of the troubles that the, many of the marquee first rounders had, uh, it had an incredibly fruitful second round to name just three, Dennis Rodman, Mark Price, and Jeff Hornacek. So again, that just goes to, uh, you know, drafting is not a, it's not a science. Yeah. Uh, But it is interesting how much they got. I think this is a really interesting draft for how much uh, they got wrong relative to some of the players picked in later rounds. Cause in these, these drafts, I always feel like they're more solid knowing who's good because of the long college careers. Right. Oh, oh, exactly. Exactly. They're much more of a known and productivity on the college level uh, is pro is was prized at that time, really. They really uh, had some whiffs here. Um, in terms oh, of no, no. And, and as we've said, I mean, the interesting thing about Washburn and Bedford is that they are total what ifs, but by no means were they slam dunk all stars. Right. We, we, you know, we, we really have no idea, but it's very possible that one of those two would have been a career backup who flamed out, not because of per, uh, personal lifestyle, but just because of, uh, because uh, of either talent or work ethic. I mean, you know, the little I know about both of those guys, I don't think anybody was raving about their skills as teammates mm-hmm. and as practice players. So, so that can translate that kind of you know, attitudes or habits can't just be attributed to the fact that uh, that you're doing drugs in in your in your off time uh some some players and people just don't work hard so uh uh no it, it has always been as i said i was very much looking forward to talking about this draft and reliving it in a certain way because uh because it it it, it remains so fascinating you know looking at each draft individually mm-hmm. What do they, you know, what is the legacy it leaves? 1984, of course, is those four, uh, those four Hall of Famers. 1985 is really the Ewing draft. His legacy comes out of that. 1987 is David Robinson. Uh, And then you have this draft, which has, uh, uh, whose legacy is, you know, really the storylines that we've, uh, that we've discussed. Just too uh, bad. It's too bad because you, you think of this as like a punctuation point on an era or an exclamation point because of all the, the drug stuff. But, you know, in a, in a different universe, this draft is seen as the first one where the NBA showed itself as really getting 
what overseas, specifically Russian, Eastern European talent could look like. Like the rec, I mean, the recognition in 1986 that, hey, this guy Arvidas Sabonis is better than any big man in the NBA, save maybe Akeem Olajuwon. And uh, that that's an interesting debate for another time. But but then also um, Drazen Petrovic. Uh, Petrovic. And like th- that to me is just, should also be the legacy of this draft. Like those two amazing players. Dennis Rodman, you know, this idea of finding this guy and him turning into this Hall of Famer, that should be a legacy of this draft. Uh, Kevin Duckworth, you know, a very critical part of these Trailblazers teams, which we've discussed that went to the finals, not drafted till the 33rd pick. Hornacek, you know, key, number three guy on those Jazz teams that went to the finals, picked 46th. I mean, there's some, there's some cool, there's some cool shit here, man. You know? Really serious players came out of this draft, for sure. Del for sure. Murray, man. Yep. And someone who uh, I know is of your mind, uh, Milt Wagner. Now, why oh, Louisville. Milt Wagner? Yeah. yeah. Father of? Father of uh, Dewan, of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Milt could never really get it going, never really get it going in the league. And again, I mean, just a, a footnote to, to, to this is that this was one of the very last years that there was more than two rounds in the uh... draft. And I think just as far as mindsets and thought processes of teams, when they're approaching also just speaks to a different reality and a different landscape that was soon to shift. Uh, You mentioned Drazen. Uh, If this was a couple of years later, Drazen wouldn't have been drafted because there wouldn't have been a third round to draft him in. Mm. So again, you know, uh, that can go in a lot of different directions, but it just marks it again as so indicative of of its time and a time that was soon uh to change in the nba and become the norm for uh for a good while this is kind of a relic of the era that came right before that and a relic in life that uh an era in life that that i hold quite dear damn that was like some f scott fitzgerald shit ari that was like the, the last line of the hoops version of the great gatsby I've been called the Muslim Gatsby in the past. <laughs> a little bit redundant. <laughs> Possibly. No idea. Possibly. Well, Shiraz, thank you so much uh, for joining me here on the Edge of Sports Podcast. Thank you to the audience for saying, hey, let's get another uh, basketball butterfly effect. So we're going to have to do this again in El Futuro, sir. Had a great time as always, Dave. I look forward to speaking with you again. Great stuff. We'll be right back after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much to Arya Shirazi for Basketball Butterfly Effect Part 4. Thank you so much to The Nation Magazine. It's the only place to go for all the news you need to know. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. I am out of here. Peace.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.